Well, good morning, everyone. Hope you're all having a good morning. Before we cover the subject today, I just wanted to pray over it. So let's bow your heads with me and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, use this passage that we're going to talk about today for the edification of your children and for the salvation of those who do not know you. I pray, God, that you would just um, use me to speak. Speak through me so that people can hear your word, because that's what's the most important thing. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your salvation through Jesus. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Have you ever witnessed a major event or circumstance? You being the one to see this. Have you ever seen an event from its beginning, maybe from its inception, Maybe it's a movement, maybe it's a product, but you watched it as it transformed, it grew and changed, and you admired how it stayed true to yourself all along the way, and you see what it is now. Now, I could say that I was there at the beginning of Facebook. Yes, Facebook. So now I've seen that it's become this incredible way to do marketing, buying, selling, and pretending like your life is perfect, right? Having been there every step of the way, I can summarize what Facebook is based upon what it was at the beginning, what it is now, and what it has always been. At the beginning, it was just a bunch of us kind of college kids just uh, making a cool profile for ourselves and sharing with the world who we are and trying to be cool by make people join our groups. And now it's, it's been, there's, it's been, it's so much more than that. So if, and seeing from what it was, and what it was has been throughout all this time until what it is even today, if I were to summarize what Facebook is, I would say it is this. It is an effective tool for online marketing. A tool for online marketing. Because back in the day, we didn't know it when we were just college kids around 2004, 2005. We didn't know that what we were doing was marketing ourselves to each other. Now the whole world has grabbed a hold of it. Now they're buying, selling things and advertising. It's become this quite this phenomenon. So, I mean, you can say the same type of thing for any subject. I mean, how would the baby boomers describe the telephone? How would your grandma describe the 20th century, right? You know, this generation saw the inception of both types of technology, and they saw the transformation throughout the decades of the telephone. Some have learned and grown with the technology in order to continue using the tools. Even though the telephone and its technology has changed drastically, the purpose of the tool has remained the same, to communicate. So my point is this, we'll know what defines anything, a tool, a concept, an invention, by asking the one who's been there through it all. Now take our belief system, Christianity, what we believe. What is the meaning of Christianity? How should one def define this concept? After almost 2,000 years of existence, how could we summarize what it was, what it has been, and what it is now all along? Well, I haven't been around for 2,000 years to summarize it, and really no one has, but if I were to say which one person could summarize Christianity, having been there during the most crucial years of the formation, I would say it would be the Apostle John. Not many people at the time of the Apostle John's life understood the entirety of the life of a Christian like the Apostle John did. He was there at the start of Christianity. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. John was one of the three inner circle disciples as one of Jesus' closest friends. John saw Jesus transfigured. John could have been the only one of the 12 to see Jesus die on the cross. John saw the empty tomb. He saw Jesus resurrected. He helped get the church started. He even took care of Jesus' mother Mary after Jesus ascended into heaven. We can only imagine the conversations they would have had about Jesus as they reflected on his life. 
even through childhood, right? John was the last remaining apostle to see what would become of the church since the Holy Spirit came upon him and the other disciples at Pentecost. John even saw the revealed glorified Jesus while having been exiled alone. Then after all these years in his elder years, he knew that he was the elder of Christianity. He saw it all. And even the early Christian church leader, Papias, one, he was a contemporary of John. He said this about John. John was a living and abiding voice for God's truth. He was the last contributor to divine revelation. He was the last to add to the record that God wanted written to the scriptures. So, whatever John has to say about Christianity, we better listen, right? We'll know what a true Christian is by hearing what John has to say about it. John was there. He saw it all. He lived it all. And now he writes letters at the end of his life to believers to help them understand what Christianity truly is. He wrote several letters that are now found in the New Testament, the New Testament of the Bible in books titled John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. And so you might think, how would John summarize Christianity in a phrase? Some might say love, the people who read the Johns, all the John books. Some might say light. I would venture to say different. Christians are different. It sounds simple, but listen to the power of its simplicity. A real Christian is different from the rest of the world, and just like Jesus, able to truly make a difference and different from anything they used to be. How? And this is, this is one of the most evident themes within all of John's writings and teachings. Because upon truly believing in Jesus, Jesus makes you different. If you're truly saved by Jesus, you're different. You're different from anyone else and different than what you used to be. You're something different now. This is what John wrote when recalling what Jesus said regarding Christianity. If Jesus answered him, this is in John 3, 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then verses 6 and 7, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. Upon believing in Jesus to forgive you of your sins and save you from hell, you receive a part of God's spirit intertwined in your spirit. The Apostle Paul confirms what John said. This is what he says in Romans 8, 9 through 10. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And the apostle Peter also says this. These are some of the three top people in, in the start of Christianity. Peter also confirms, he says in 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, verses 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, like spiritual, through the living and abiding word of God. A Christian has the spirit of God living within them. A Christian is different from anyone else in the world because they have a part of God within them, not just a belief or a philosophy in their mind. Jesus was God in the body of man. Since God sent the Holy Spirit to believers on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, Christians for all time can have full access to God in their bodies. Jesus even said this in John 15, 26-27, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. 
The Spirit of God within a Christian will operate himself through the Christian to accomplish his will. Without the Holy Spirit, you are just like anyone else. Even if you're going to church. A churchgoer is different from a Christian. A churchgoer is a person in the church. This person might claim to believe in Jesus and might even mimic Jesus-like behavior just to fit in with the other churchgoers. A Christian has the capacity to act like Jesus at all times, in any circumstance, because they have been born again and have the Holy Spirit within them. The Holy Spirit's presence will grow from within over time, making it more and more evident and manifest that the person is more like Jesus. Someone who simply goes to church and pretends to be a Christian will not increase in resemblance to Jesus. And this is the point of John's letters. John teaches us how to distinguish between who has been made truly different by Jesus and who is still like the rest of the world. Who is a real Christian and who is not? It's very important. If you claim to be a Christian and there's no difference in your life, you're not different, then you are like the rest of the world. You are on your way to eternal destruction in hell when you die. If Jesus has truly saved you, then you are different. You are different from the culture. You think, act, and speak differently than the culture. Do you pass the test? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 13.5, Examine yourselves, like test yourselves, to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? I can't think of a better way to test one's faith in Jesus than going through John's summary of a Christian in his first letter. His first letter is called 1 John. Let's examine and test by asking, am I a real Christian or not? Just be brave. Just embrace it. Let's see what the results are, right? We're going to do a flyover of 1 John in this sermon and see how John summarizes Christianity. After seeing the criteria, you'll have a better understanding of what Christianity was and has always been. Different. Different because God is living within the Christian. Let's see what the life of a person with Jesus looks like and the life of a person without Jesus looks like. We'll start in 1 John uh, 1, 5 through 6. He says this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So, first point, Christians live in the light. There is no darkness in them. Just think about this. Because God is light and a part of God is in the Christian, the Christian is in the light and not in darkness. Now, think about this. When trying to describe darkness, what I think is, is movies come to mind. I went to, um, I went to school trying to work on a film studies degree. I wanted to be in the movies. I really did. I wanted to be in media production. And when you're, you're taught in movies, the culture for movie making really is that it's a really good movie, especially when I was, when I was going through um, school for this kind of thing, movies are really good. A good quality movie is something that's, this is what they say. They say real, gritty, bold, and dark. Dark was always the word. That's a dark film. That's dark. Had nothing to do with color complexion. It was just kind of um, the morality of it, if I were to give it a word. But really, the quality of it, it, it was a really good film if it was dark. And they say if it was real and bold. And, and really, those types of films were just full of vulgarity, full of creepiness, full of violence, 
uh, even, I, I guess, darker lighting, really. I mean, a lot of bad things happen under the cover of darkness. And I think that's why John uses this word, darkness, Christians in the light. And so when I think about that, when I think about someone who's like, I'm a Christian, but I really like movies that have like gore and horror, and I really sympathize with a villain, you know, that type of thing. Well, guess what? You claim to be a Christian, but you're kind of still living in darkness. You're enjoying darkness. I mean, that's like a good question. These are good questions to ask. Do you like darkness? Do you like perverted things? Do you like doing things in secret? Do you like twisted humor, horror and gore? witchcraft and the occult murder mysteries and psycho thrillers. These are all pertaining to darkness. The culture of the world lives in darkness and affirms and celebrates darkness. Just like I said, like in film studies, they're like, that's a good film. You, you were brave and bold and real by being, by going into darkness. It's like, no, 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 no. The Christian life does not go into darkness. The Christian is different because the Christian lives in the light. There's no reason for the Christian to hide. Not only does the Christian welcome the exposure of their righteous life, but they will expose and oppose dark behavior as well. Next, John says this in in, uh, 1 verse 4, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Okay? So the way of the world is to claim innocence or to claim being a victim of circumstances. The claim is that all people are truly good deep down. Right? Shifts of blame to someone else. Ownership and accountability do not exist in the life of someone who is deceived. So, but listen, Christians, Christians used to be like this. Christians no longer claim innocence. We plead guilty before God and ask for forgiveness. We don't try to pretend like we never did anything wrong. Oh, I'm just good. We do not claim a false human sense of righteousness by always claiming to be a victim. We do not oppress people trying to gain sympathy, right? Oh, woe is me. I've been wronged and wronged and wronged. Well, guess what? Everybody does wrong. The Christian confesses our sins to God. We admit that we did wrong and we ask for forgiveness from God himself. And all of this with the intention of not sinning anymore. You're going to see some patterns in, in the book of first John in terms of describing the Christian. And that's one of them. The Christian does not want to sin anymore. The true Christian does not want to sin anymore. The world teaches you that you are great just the way you are, that you are inherently good. This is deception. The Christian knows that we are doomed forever to hell, believing we are inherently good, and know that Jesus alone can redeem our inherent evil selves. So that was the last point. So next, we'll go to chapter 2, verse 3. It's a, John says, and by this we know that we have come to know him, meaning Jesus. We, have, we know that we have come to know Jesus if we keep his commandments. 1 John 2, 3. Now, this is this is a, a, a very important point that is very missed in the church today. The Christian has the capability to actually keep God's commandments. There are false teachers out there who teach that the Ten Commandments are only supposed to help you feel inadequate and then help you fall into the arms of Jesus' grace. The next step in this line of thinking is you can't stop sinning, so therefore don't worry about it. The cheap grace idea is false teaching that is sending many to hell. It's saying, I can't help sinning, but good thing, good thing of Jesus' grace, because I just can't help sinning. Guess what? The ones who are truly Christians are able and willing to obey the Ten Commandments of God. John is clear in his overarching perspective of Christianity on this. I'm going to say it again. The, The ones who are true Christians are able and willing to obey the Ten Commandments of God. And some of you, just to refresh, what are the Ten, what are the Ten Commandments? 
Okay, there, worship only God. Don't make idols. Do not take God's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie. Do not steal. Do not murder. And do not covet or want, you know, covetously what other people have. Some people think that Jesus came to bypass obedience to these commands just by forgiving us of our sins. Oh, we're good to go by Jesus. That is false. Jesus made it even harder to obey because Jesus said, don't sin in your mind. That's even harder. Lust is adultery in your mind, says Jesus. Hate is murder in your mind, said Jesus. The world wants to ignore the Ten Commandments and many churches do too. However, with God's spirit in you, you will actually be able and willing and have the capability to obey all that God has commanded with your words, actions, and thoughts. Jesus is God in person and he never sinned. The Christian has God in them and God will help you be more and more like Jesus. Jesus was sinless and the Christian will be sinning less and less. And John expands upon this in chapter five, verse three, and then we'll come back to where we've been left off. For the, He says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So for the Christian, it's not even hard to obey God's commandments. They love God so much, it's a joy to obey. The false Christian will find it hard to obey the commandments. There's no God power within them to help them. Paul said that the unsaved are a slave to sin. They can't help it. But the Christian is a slave to righteousness. They can't help but obey God and do what's right. That's an important, you're going to see more of that. Um, you would read more of that if you go into John yourself as well. Let's go back to where we left off. Let's go to chapter two, verse 29. Um, it says, if if you know that he, meaning Jesus, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So it's not just about not obeying the commandments. It's about practicing what's good and doing what's actually righteous. The world exalts being bad and selfish. They really do. Survive at all costs, even if that means someone else is harmed or misses out. The Christian is different. The true Christian helps the needy, protects the helpless, cares for the orphan and widow, doesn't put people down, but lifts them up, all for the purpose of helping them experience and believe in Jesus. To expand upon this, let's look at chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him, meaning Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 1 John 2, 6. We resemble Jesus in how he lived. The Christian looks more and more like Jesus. Jesus is the model we follow and the behavior we follow and and and. and um, take on. Jesus gave up having a normal earthly life and literally died so that others could gain eternity. So caring for someone else and not just trying to survive is selfless. How do we feel about donning on a completely and utterly selflessness, even if it hurts or kills our very being in revealing Christ likeness to others, others see the reality of Jesus himself in us and therefore have a chance to believe in him for salvation. So those who practice righteousness and those who deny themselves are true Christians. Let's continue on. Chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because of the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, I'm going to say this right now. This is about other believers. When it talks about the brother, it's not talking about your brother man and fellow man. Yeah, the Christian does not hate anybody. But there's a genuine love for other believers as well. Christians do not hate anyone, especially other Christians. God does not hate anyone. Hate is only reserved for sin in God's eyes. So why does it seem that there is so much division in the church? 
I'll tell you why. The short answer, because there are fake believers in the church. That's why. That's because there's hate within the church. If it was all true Christians together, there'd be all love. So, because the people of the world will actually hate the Christian. So when that person goes to church, the person who is not a true Christian, they're not really saved, not born again, and they go to church for whatever motivation, they will in turn hate the Christians that are there and start to drive Christians out of the church. John actually shares a real, um, his, a real circumstance like this in his third letter. He says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, a man in the church who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. This is what Diotrephes was doing. He was talking wicked nonsense against John and his people. And not content with that, this Diotrephes refuses to welcome the brothers and sisters of Jesus and also stops those who wants to be and puts them out of the church. See that? You see the hate there? Diotrephes was in the church, but not a real Christian because he was trying to kick out other believers. Jesus even told John personally that in a church in a town called Laodicea, there were no Christians in it at all. That's a different topic, but that's interesting. You can have a church with no people who believe in Jesus actually in there. There are many things that would make the average unbeliever like the church. I'm just going to say this real quick. Some churches have a community center feel. And really, they are just kind of a community center with nice people, networking, free live music, babysitting, sports leagues, free events, and a chance to get involved and find a cultural purpose. Right? So that's at its worst. That's at its worst. I'm going to say that. That the church is just a place where nice people get involved together. At its best, the church really is the assembly of people who are born again in Jesus and trying to live out Christ-likeness to a world that needs Jesus. But anybody can come in. And the spiritually unborn normally bring the dysfunction of the world with them to the corruption of the church. This is pretty deep stuff, but this is true. Now, listen, I'm going to run through the last few sections uh, a little on the quicker side, but you're going to see a pattern as we go through this, as John describes the life of a Christian. Let's do chapter two, verses 15 and 16. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, meaning Father God. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So here's some questions it makes you want, that'll help you understand if you love the world that much. Does the prospect of losing things for the sake of Jesus make you sad? Does the thought of the world being destroyed by fire make you panic? Are you sad that things are being destroyed in the world or that the world is embracing sin more and more? Do you grieve evil in the world like Lot did? Lot was this man in the Old Testament who lived in a very wicked city. And Peter talks about, Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 2. He says, If God rescued righteous Lot, who greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for, for as that righteous man lived among the people of his wicked city day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Do you feel like you're being tortured by the wicked that's continuing to progress in this world? Like it really pains you or is it just some kind of annoyance that you have to dislike, right? Let's go to chapter three, verse one. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that we, it did not know him. So this is part of that difference from everybody else in the world. The world does not know us Christians. Have you ever heard the phrase, it's who you know? 
right? God knows his children by name and he knows every hair on our heads and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. First John 3, 3. Oh, sorry. I'm jumping ahead of myself. <laughs> I just read my next. I'm just looking ahead of my notes here. I'm sorry. Going back. The world does not know us. You've heard the phrase. It's who you know. The people of the world help and support the people of the world. They do. They pull out a red carpet for everyone who's worldly. But anyone who's righteous, they shun. I have had situations where people literally freak out on me for no reason. No one, the people have, the, a certain person has never met me before. And they literally scream, swear, and insult me to my face um, for no reason. And not just because, not because they're inebriated. It wasn't at a wrong time of the day. It's just because that's a person of the world. And what's in them is evil. And what's in me is righteous. And they just hate me. And so they don't know me and they just freak out on me. It was, it was, it's happened a few times and I just take that as some kind of a strange social persecution. So it doesn't, hasn't bothered me. It just makes me concerned for their soul, if you know what I mean. All right. So there you go. The world does not know the Christian. Next verse. Everyone, this is what I just said before I jumped ahead. Everyone who thus hopes in him, hopes in Jesus, purifies himself as Jesus is pure. First John 3, 3. The key in this verse is to purify himself. The Christian purifies himself. This means give up anything that causes one to sin, even if it hurts. If it's something that you shouldn't have, you're okay getting rid of it. Look what the author of Hebrews says in, in Hebrews 12, chapter 1. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us put aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Another version of the verse is, let us throw off everything that hinders. There are a lot of things we own that we don't need. Things that are actually wicked and of the world. We don't need them to live a Christian life. We change from people who want to hold on to everything we have into people who want to be rid of anything that holds us back from being used for God's gospel mission. That's a difference. Someone of the world says, I need to keep everything I have. I need to keep as, and get as much as I can get. The Christian says, I'm getting rid of everything that keeps me away from God's will. And I'm going to, and I'm going to do that. Some people say, well, you just got to be willing and then you can still keep everything you have. No, the Christian says, I'm getting rid of it all. I'm getting rid of it all that I shouldn't have. All right. Here's a, here's another important one. First John three, six, no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. You hear that? No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning. Or the, yeah. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The Christian stops the continual practice of sin. You might sin, but it won't be deliberate or habitual. You're not perfect yet. Right. This is an expansion of what we said earlier, that you will obey the commandments and a life of consistent sin and wrongdoing will stop in your life. If you're the true Christian, first John three 13, don't be surprised brothers when that the world hates you This is an expansion of what we said before too. The Christian is hated by worldly people because you won't conform to their ways. First John three twenty four. whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. What this is saying is that obedience to God's commandments reveal that we have God's spirit interlaced with our spirit. You see that? You see some of the patterns here? We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There is a connection to like-minded Christians. Do you see a difference between the Christian and the non-Christian in this? The person of the church who does not experience a new change towards righteousness is not a Christian, just a person inside the church headed for hell. They're not different. There's nothing different about their life. There wasn't a moment in which the difference was made. They're not different from the world, but they're just in the church and they can't make a difference either. So, 
First John 4, 7, last one from this. Oh no, there's two more, sorry. But he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. What is biblical love? It's not the love we see in, in the movies. I'm just going to say that, or in pop culture. Love is patient and kind, not envious or boastful, not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. First Corinthians 13, right? Someone who is of God has the ability to love other believers and actually be loving. And also on that note, first John four eighteen, the last one that we're going to go over, there is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So the Christian is not afraid. They're not fearful. They're not riddled with anxiety. No matter what happens in life, we face life without fear. That's not to say we won't come anxious at some points or a little nervous, but not a completely habitual, consistent personality of fear. Why? Because we have the reality in our souls that we will be in paradise in perfection with Jesus forever when we die. So we can even face death without fear. We can face life without fear and death. Look, my wife has worked in hospice for years. She can't count the number of times she's seen people without faith in Jesus have convulsive, unsettled, panicky fear of their impending death. She's seen it again and again. But the opposite is true of the Jesus believer that she's seen. That that person has an unusual sense of peace on their deathbeds. This is because of the Spirit of God within them, giving them peace that surpasses understanding. Do you see the pattern here? There's a difference. The Christian is different. It's different from anyone else, more like Jesus. They're able to make a difference, but they're also different than what they ever used to be. They're different than what they were. To close, I just want to add this. Everyone who is born of God experiences an actual distinguishable change. They used to be just like the world, but now they are continually becoming more and more like Jesus. They are not only different from the rest of the world, but they are different from how they used to be. I'm not talking about the natural development that comes from aging and maturing, all right? Because like a few years ago, I felt like my frontal cortex finally finished developing. Now as a man with a fully functioning brain, and I don't feel like doing extreme sports anymore like I did when I was a kid. That looks like fun. Ow. You know, I'm not talking about natural development. I'm talking about the change from being evil to being righteous. It's about change from being a wicked person like the rest of the world to being more and more like Jesus. Know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Listen, upon the first breath, at the first birth of, upon first birth of everyone, everyone is classified under the list of these verses. Everyone is born one of these things, or many, or all. We are born as murderers, sexually immoral people, greedy, thieves, etc. And we will continue in that unless Jesus saves us and we are born again. Upon salvation from Jesus, you're no longer a criminal. You are no longer bound for hell. You are different than you used to be because of Jesus. A saved person will not enjoy, affirm, or participate in these natural ways anymore. An unsaved churchgoer will. After an encounter with the gospel of Jesus, were you changed? Changed from doing wrong to doing right? Changed from being like everyone else to being more like Jesus? Be honest with yourselves. 
I've seen churches and well-meaning Christians try to simulate change by affirming false conversions while neglecting discipleship. You know, wow, you went from a lonely, unengaged person who didn't go to church, and now you are part of a Jesus-themed community center, and you get involved every week with people who know you now. You're so different than you used to be. That's not a real change. That's not real. That's not a real eternal life change. That's simply a change of schedule and social group, right? Sure, some people need a place to start. That's okay. Then the church is the best place. It's a great safe place to start a life change and one's spiritual journey with Jesus. But remember, a real eternal life change is Jesus living inside of you, filling the emptiness of your lost human condition. How will you know when Jesus is living inside of you? You will be more like him. You will be different from the world. You will love the things and people that Jesus loves. You will help to make a difference in other people's lives for the kingdom of God, for Jesus and not yourself. And you will be different from who you used to be. All right, let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word, your truth, your son, Jesus, and the gift of salvation. God, I pray for the people out there that feel like they're a one big question mark right now. Where after hearing this message, that they're wondering, wait a minute, some of these things sound like me. God, help me. I pray that you would help those people. I pray, God, you'd help those people repent. I pray that you help those people stop the things they know they should stop and just turn to you more and more, Jesus. I pray for the lost. I pray for the people that need to hear you more. I pray for the people who are your children, God. Ignite them to to save the lost, to bring them to you so that they can be saved by you, Jesus. I pray for those who maybe are new to the faith that are actually saved and they're just starting this journey and they actually have the spirit of God in them. Help them to grow in the assurance that you have saved them, God, that you have saved them through Jesus. Help them to grow in your love, Jesus. Help them to grow in your salvation. For those who have, who actually are not saved, but are in the church, I pray God that you would open their eyes, pull the wool over their eyes. Oh, sorry. Take the wool off their eyes, pull the veil out from over their eyes. Help them to see clearly. Take the scales off their eyes, Heavenly Father. The people who are in the church are churchgoers, but they're going to hell. God, save these poor people who are deceived and self-deceived. Show them the truth and help them to be set free by you, Jesus. Father God, you are good. You actually give us a chance to be saved. You give us a chance to spend eternity with you because you love us and you sent Jesus to save you. You sent Jesus to save us because you love us. Thank you, Father God, so much. Father God, use this message to help others. Use this message to bring people to you, Jesus, that they may be saved. And may you be glorified as a result. God, you are good. And I pray all these, all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.